this morning, we are looking at Psalm 51. So if you have your Bible, you can open up there. Psalm 51, we're continuing on in our series in the Psalms. Very well-known Psalm, probably familiar to many of you. Uh, but nonetheless, let's ask God to bless our time this morning that he would open it up for us and teach us this morning. Let's pray. Dear God, God, you say that the law of the Lord is perfect and that it revives the soul. Your testimonies are sure and they make simple, or sorry, they make the wise simple. Your precepts are right. They make hearts rejoice. Your commandments are pure and they enlighten our eyes. This morning we come to you, God, and we ask, oh, that your word would do that, that it would revive our souls that it would make us wise to salvation, that make our hearts rejoice, bring light to our dark eyes. We ask that you would speak to us now, apply your scriptures to our hearts. This passage, Psalm 51, God, it exposes our sin unlike any other passage of scripture, so we ask that you would use it this morning to do just that. Would you bring conviction? Would you bring challenge in exposing us but also, would you use it to comfort us, to point us away from ourselves and to your son, Jesus, where we find all of our hope, all of forgiveness that you offer, all of the grace that you wish to pour out upon us. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. So the story goes like this. There are two men, two men who lived in a large city. And like many large cities, one of these men was exceedingly rich, the other was exceedingly poor. This rich man was bursting with resources. Bursting with resources. He had flocks and herds of sheep, lambs, bulls, oxen, goats, even camels. He had abundant crops, goods. He even had multiple servants who waited on him and his family hand and foot. He was exceedingly rich, abounding in resources. The poor man, though... He was the complete antithesis of this. He was completely abreast of any sort of financial resources. He had nothing to his name. In fact, all he had was one tiny ewe lamb. He had bought it a year before. He spent everything he had a year before to buy this ewe lamb, and he did everything he could to keep it alive. He fed the lamb from his own food. The lamb drank from his cup. There was this joke around the city that he treated the ewe lamb better than his daughters. The ewe lamb was all that he had, all that he spent his money on, and he did everything he could to keep that ewe lamb alive. And then one night... A traveler came and passed through the city, and he thought to himself, I don't want to journey on any further. I'm going to stop, and I'm going to see if my friend will take me in. Well, his friend was the rich man. He thought, well, the, the rich man will have some time for me. I, I don't want to spend the night with the stars above me. I can spend it in his house. I'll stop by, have a nice meal with my friend, rest for the evening. My donkeys, my servants, they'll be able to refresh themselves, and then I'm just going to be on my way in the morning. So the rich man now faced a dilemma. He faced this dilemma because he had all of these herds, Right? He had invested a lot of money to build up his flocks of sheep and lambs and bulls and oxen and goat and camels. He would invested a lot of energy building up his wealth, but he also wanted to accommodate his friend. So he came up 
with this scheme. He hatched this scheme. Here's what I'm going to do. Instead of killing one of my sheep, instead of killing one of my lambs, I'm going to send my servant off and my servant will go and sneak into the city and find a house where there's a person who has a lamb. And once that person falls asleep, I'll have my servant break into the house, take the lamb, bring it back. And that's what I'll feed my friend with. And we'll whine, we'll dine, we'll wake up. Everything will be okay. So that's exactly what he did. He sent one of his servants into the city and he goes to the house of this poor man and he's looking through the window and he sees right as the man sleeps puts his head on the pillow he sneaks into the house grabs the ewe lamb brings it back to the rich man's house slaughters the lamb prepares it for his master and his traveling friend to eat for dinner that night and all's okay this rich man gets the boast of both, best of both worlds. His friend thinks that he's hospitable, thinks that he's accommodating, and it doesn't cost him anything. Some of you are familiar with that story. That story actually comes from the Bible. It's the story of a man named Nathan. He was a prophet around the year 1000 BC. And when David, when David, the king of Israel, heard this story, he was indignant outraged. How on earth could somebody do this? You've got to be kidding me. Who is this rich man? If this really happened, Nathan, if this story has any modicum of truth in it, that man should be put to death. How could somebody be so pitiless? How? Tell me who did this. Bring this man to me. First, I'm going to make him pay the poor man back. Give him back his sheep that he stole and then he's going to have to pay him back fourfold, give four additional sheep. And then after that, capital punishment executed. This man deserves to die. So Nathan, the prophet, standing before powerful King David, says, it's interesting. <laughs> Speaking to David, Nathan looks at him in the eye and says, David, you're the man. You're the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And as if that were too little, I would, if you just asked David, I would even give you more. You're the rich man. So why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You're the rich man. And by your own admission, you deserve the sentence of death. And as soon as David heard the words of Nathan the prophet, he, he knew right away what David, or what Nathan was talking about. Because in his mind, he knew just, just nine months earlier, in the spring of that year, David had 
you know, undergone this pretty grave ordeal. During the spring, this was the time that people would send out their armies to go and battle to try and conquer more lands. And David did just that. He sent out his army to fight against the Ammonites, one of these neighboring nations adjacent to Israel. But David decided, you know, as king, I've fought my battles. I've fought my battles. I defeated Goliath. I defeated the Philistines. I united Israel and Judah, their one kingdom. I'm going to stay back in Jerusalem this year. I'm not going to go out and fight. I'm just going to stay back. And one day, as David is walking on the roof of his house in the cool of the night, his palace, you have to understand, it's it's the highest palace in Jerusalem. So it overlooks all of the rooftops throughout Jerusalem. And as one night he's walking on his roof, he sees in the distance this woman who's bathing on her roof. And he's attracted to her. So he calls over one of his servants and asks, who is that woman down there? And the servant says, oh, you, you know who that is. That, that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. That, Uriah, the officer in your army, that's, that's his wife. And David ponders this. And he's consumed by his desire for this woman. So after a few hours, he calls his servant back to him and says, hey, go, go get Bathsheba. Tell her that the king needs her. Tell her to come back to my house. Come back to the palace. And the servant does what he says. He goes to Uriah, Uriah's wife, uh, Bathsheba, brings her back to the palace. And David, using His power as king forces Bathsheba to sleep with him. Several weeks pass after this whole ordeal kind of took place, this this night after this whole ordeal, and Bathsheba writes to David saying, well, I'm pregnant. Uriah's been fighting. You know, he's out fighting the Ammonites. He's with your men. There's only one person who could be the father, and it's you. And into this sordid ordeal, David then hatches this scheme in order, in order to cover up. He says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite Uriah back from battle and invite him back. I'll get him drunk. I'll wine him. I'll dine him. I'll send him home to sleep with Bathsheba. And then, you know, about eight-ish months or so later after he's gone back into battle, you know, uh, Bathsheba will have this baby. Uriah will think, oh, that child must be mine. Everyone else will think the child is his as well. Nobody will know the difference. David will take this whole ordeal and just hit delete. Right? Click file. Go over to history. Scroll down. Clear all. Click. Ah, Done. Problem is, David's scheme doesn't work. What David didn't realize is that Uriah, one of his officers in the army, he's a man of deep integrity, he's a man of honor. So Uriah does come back to Jerusalem. He wines and dines at David's palace. He even gets drunk. But David then says, hey, go home. Go home, relax. Go home, be with your wife. And Uriah says, no way. I'm not going to do that. I can't go home and do the hanky-panky while all the other soldiers are on the front lines risking their life. Hanky-panky is a technical Hebrew term, by the way, just in case you're wondering. So, so scheme one doesn't work. He doesn't go home. David can't hit delete. There's something, something wrong with the button. It just doesn't go away. So he hatches scheme number two. He instructs 
his general, whose name is Joab, he writes him a letter. And he actually puts that letter into the hand of Uriah the Hittite and says, don't read it. Go bring this to the commander of my army. Go bring this to the general. Go bring this to Joab. And that's what Uriah does. He's an obedient servant to the great king. He brings this letter. And what the letter says is, hey, Joab, send Uriah to the front ranks of the fight. Attack the city of the Ammonites. And then just give some sort of signal. Some sort of signal that all the other officers, all the other troops know except for Uriah. And they're going to retreat and it's going to leave Uriah exposed so that he can be taken down by the Ammonites. That'll take care of everything. And to begin with, it seems like the scheme actually works. That's exactly what happens. Uriah and the soldiers, they go and attack this Ammonite castle and from the ramparts, as Joab calls all the other soldiers back, from the ramparts come down archers shooting their arrows, and boom, Uriah's dropped, just like that. Scheme number two worked. All that's left is for David to marry Bathsheba, bury Uriah, and then adopt Uriah's son. File, history, scroll down, clear all, click, done. It worked until nine months later when Nathan the prophet comes. David of all people, see, see, David of all people, he should have known. He was the king of Israel, the leader of God's people. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. He of all people should have known. You can't just hit delete. David of all people should have known that even if you've covered up your sin, even if you try to wash your hands of the consequences, sin has this ability to leave an indelible blot and stain upon a person's soul unless they bring it before God for forgiveness. He of all people should have known you can't just hit delete. You're the rich man. You've despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in God's sight and by your own admission, you deserve death. I'm sure many of you are like me. You know what that indelible blot of sin feels like. I've looked at things. I've seen things with my eyes that I cannot not remember. I've looked at certain things and they are indelibly marked into the recesses of my mind. They're almost infiltrated into my brainstem so that even though I want to, even though I want to forget, even though by my sheer willpower I try and forget, I just can't. Those images are still in my mind. I can't get rid of them. There are words, things that I've said about other people and they're out there. They're out there. They have done their damage. They have cut people to the heart and I can't take them back. No matter how much I try, I just cannot reel them back in and treat them as if nothing happened. There are instances in my parenting with my own children whom I love where I've lashed out with my words in fits of rage. And I look back at those moments and I grieve over them because I know that these could very well be some of the first memories my children will have of their dad. That's why I've started a savings account to start paying for all the counseling that they'll need in the future. 
those, <laughs> those sins, that guilt, it can't simply be deleted or clicked away. They leave an indelible blot and stain that I can't cover up. I can't wash my hands of on my own. Even though nine months have passed for David, he realizes the same thing. That indelible mark has finally come to the surface and been exposed. So David does the only thing he can do. He pours out his heart before God. And this prayer, Psalm 51, this is the model prayer, the model of the only thing a person can do with their sin once it has been exposed. It's a model showing us how a person polluted by the indelible mark of sin can come before the God of the universe. And this prayer has three movements, kind of three different flows of thought. The first movement, by the way, is significantly longer than the second and the third. So just so you know, after number one, when we move on to two, uh, it's not going to be quite as long. Uh, We will get out of here before 3 p.m., I promise. In the first movement, you see very simply what David does is he confesses his sin. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 51, David prays, have mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. If you think about really how humbling this would have been for David, overnight, all of his dirty laundry, everything that he had stuffed into a closet All of his dirty laundry has now just been aired for everyone to see. It starts with Nathan, but you know, right? There are people in David's royal court who overhear this, and that's going to just spill over into the city of Jerusalem. It's going to spill over into the rest of Israel. It's going to spill over maybe even to the surrounding nations. And everyone's going to know what David tried to cover up and wash his hands of is finally going to be exposed. And his sin, he now says, is ever before him. He's surrounded by it. He can't escape it. He can't separate himself from this sin he had tried so hard to hide. Some of you are, I'm sure, undoubtedly familiar with the name Monica Lewinsky. Monica Lewinsky, uh, back in 1998, you know the story, but 17 years later, after 1998, she came out with a TED Talk where she talks about her experience when she was 22. And in this talk, she recounts this meeting she had with some of her interns who were 22, fresh out of college. And it was this one interaction that she had with a particular intern that made her realize later that night as she went home from work that she said she's probably the only person in the United States over the age of 40 that doesn't want to be 22 again. She says because at the age of 22, she fell in love with her boss. And at 24, She experienced the consequences of it, and everybody knew it. She goes on to say, quote, Not a day goes by that I'm not reminded of my mistake. And I regret that mistake deeply. What that mistake meant for me personally was that overnight, I went from being a completely private figure, somebody that nobody knew. Nobody knew my name. Only my family knew my name. Nobody else outside my family and immediate friends knew who I was. And she says she went from being a completely private figure to a publicly humiliated one worldwide. 
And Lewinsky goes on to say, it wasn't just the guilt of her actions that was so humbling. Rather, it was the shame she felt for having been exposed, the shame she felt for having her personal sins uncovered. Imagine having your greatest mistake Your greatest sin ever before you, always preceding you. It's always on your mind. You walk into a room and you realize that every other person was talking about it because the second that you step foot over that threshold, it's silent. David writes, that's my reality, God. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. I walk on my roof I walk on my roof every night, and I remember when I walked on my roof nine months ago. I walk into my bedroom, and I remember that night. I look at my bed, and I remember that night. I look at my servants, and I can't look them in the eye anymore. I talk to that servant who I've sent away, and and it's almost unspeakable between us. I look at my soldiers. I think of Uriah. I talk with Joab, the commander of my army. I see him regularly, and I, I can't even bear the sight of him because I'm riddled with guilt. We know what we did. It's between us. Everywhere I look, everywhere I go, all of it reminds me of of my transgression. I can't cover over it or delete it from my history. I can't do that. It's always there, ever before me, every day, every night, indelibly marked in the recesses of my mind. When you think about that, do you see the remarkable shift that's happened with David? No more schemes, no more justifications. No more attempts at covering up, washing his hands. That's all gone. Instead, David just plainly, particularly, honestly confesses his sins before God. He lays himself bare because that's the model. He's been exposed. I need mercy, God. I know my transgressions, my Sin is ever before me. Notice he doesn't say, you know, I was just minding my own business. I was walking on my roof and, and Bathsheba was there. Ba- who, who bathes on their roof? Who does that? It, it's not my fault. She shouldn't have been bathing there. It's not, not my fault. I was just innocently scrolling through my newsfeed and the pop-up came. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know, is it just a really stressful time in my life? I'm king after all. You don't understand the pressure. There's financial constraints. People, you know, they, they look to me for leadership. And, and at that point, just all that stress overcame me. It's something external, not my fault. Everything overwhelmed me in that time. I was tired. I was exhausted. I was hungry. You caught me at my worst, God. We know this tendency, right? This is This is almost our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is to obfuscate, to cover, to make justifications, to, you know, shift blame, shift responsibility. It was my wife's fault. It was my husband's fault. It was traffic's fault. I was at the end of my rope. Something came over me. If he didn't do that first, I wouldn't have lashed out. If she didn't always say that, I wouldn't have reacted that way. It's my grandma's fault for all of the trauma that she caused me in a past life. That's our natural tendency, right? Excuse, obfuscate, justify. It's not our fault. And when you think about it, right, those excuses, those justifications, man, that's the history of humankind. Go go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam eats from the tree that 
God said, do not eat from that tree. On the day you do, you will surely die. And as he takes that bite, God comes to him and says, well, did you, did you eat from the tree? Well, yeah, but the woman who you gave me, God, she's the one who gave it to me and I ate. It's not my fault. The woman who you gave me. So it's not just her fault. It's your fault, God. If you, God, didn't give me her, then she wouldn't have tempted me and I wouldn't have done what I did. It's that simple. That's our natural tendency. It's been the history of humankind. Obfuscate, justify, excuse. Uh, And this is even in trivial things. Just the other day, Hannah and I, this was Friday afternoon, Hannah and I were debating who's the worst driver. And nothing will expose just how much you want to justify your actions than when somebody calls your driving into question, right? And it's a known fact. It's a known fact that Hannah has been in more accidents than I have. And so I bring that up. Well, who's been in more accidents? What about your first accident? Well, that wasn't my fault. Somebody hit me from behind. Well, what about your second accident? Well, that wasn't my fault either. That was a crazy driver who sideswiped me in a turn lane. That wasn't my fault. And then she brings up my accident. She says, that was when I was in my 20s. Now we're in our 30s. And you just had an accident a couple months ago. And you can imagine, right? All the justifications and excuses were as long as my arm, right? I I was in a parking lot. The parking lot was small. I was in my truck. The sun was in my eyes. The brake pedal was wet. My mirror was foggy. A bug flew in my left eye. The car I hit, the car I hit was so short that I couldn't even see it in the rearview mirror. It is as if this parked car hit me and I was just an innocent bystander. (laughs) There's none of that with David here now. David's sins have been exposed. There's no scheme. There's no justification. There's no excuse. There's just this shift in confession. This is what I've done, God. I know my transgressions. It's it's ever before me. It's everywhere I look. I can't escape it. My covetousness led to lust, which led to adultery with another man's wife, which led to lies, which led to murder. David began with cover-up. Now he's bringing it to the Lord in confession. That's, that's the model. It's the, only, it's the only way that the indelible blot can ever be removed. You have to bring it before the Lord of heaven and earth. Our church... Um, in our denomination, we have a statement of faith. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's about 33 chapters long of everything that we believe as a church, everything from who God is to how we're made right with God to how the church should function in the world, who Jesus Christ is. And it speaks about what confession should look like as well. And, and this has always resonated with me. It reads, Christians should not be content with a general confession. But in every Christ follower's duty, it is every Christ follower's duty to confess his or her particular sins particularly. General confession's good. God, I sinned. God, I didn't do what I should do. God, I messed up. That's good. But true, heartfelt, Sincere, honest, plain confession brings particular sins 
to God like David does here. And he confesses, that person confesses to them, to God particularly. Father, I looked at pornography. Father, I hate my husband for what he's done. I hate him. Father, I lied again to my parents about where I went last night. I deceived them. Father, I, I lied in that meeting because I cared way more about what they thought about me rather than what you thought of me. Father, I think I'm so much better than her. I do. I know it's not true, but I do. I, I, I'm better than her. That's the model. That's what makes confession so humbling. You're bringing your dirty laundry, all of that stuff. You're bringing that dirty laundry, which in your natural tendency, you want to justify, you want to excuse. You would never tell anybody about it. You want to cover it up. And what you do is you bring it and you drop the schemes. You drop them and you simply, plainly, honestly Confess your particular sins to God. Have mercy on my God. Here are my transgressions. And as part of David's confession, as he's bearing his soul before God, he goes beyond just the mere confessing of what he's done. And he acknowledges also that 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 transgression has made him guilty. See that in verse 4. As he moves on, he continues by saying, Against you, remember he's speaking to God. This is a prayer to God. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, to be sure, David knows he sinned against Bathsheba. He knows he sinned against Uriah. He's not denying that. He's not denying that. Rather, what David's praying here is he is saying that at the end of the day, every sin he commits, every sin we commit, in the final analysis is a sin that is primarily against God. Sin is a sin because it is against God and his laws. The horizontal, you know, relational effect that sin has is bad. But what makes sin, sin is that it is a sin, a transgression, an iniquity against the God who made us. That's what makes sin, sin. And David prays, God, you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He realizes because sin in the final analysis is against God, he now stands under God's judgment and deserves his punishment. In essence, what David is saying is, have mercy on me, God. My sin is exposed. I know my transgressions. And because of it, if I were to stand in your courtroom today, there could only be one verdict. Guilty. Guilty. It's important to realize this too. David is not talking about subjective inward feeling guilt. No, he's talking about an objective guilt for a person who has broken a law. I am guilty, God. I have objectively broken your holy law. This is my plea. I am guilty. I've sinned and I deserve the consequences of my actions. 
Some of you know this, you know, a couple weeks ago I was sick. I think, I think I had COVID, had some stuff going through me. So I spent the better part of four days sitting in my bed and watching murder mysteries. And all these murder mysteries, by the end of them, it, you realize no matter how deceptive they are, it, it always turns out that, yeah, you know what? Nobody can really escape their guilty verdict. There's, there's one person... And it becomes very clear at the end. You know, there's always a witness who saw the crime or a video recording that filmed the crime or there are fingerprints of the person at the scene of the crime or the person originally changed their story. They originally kind of confessed to the crime, but then they kind of backpedal it and it becomes obvious that they're the ones who did it. Everything points to that person that they're the one who did the crime. And every single time it comes to the time of the arraignment and the judge says, how do you plea and how do they plea? Not guilty. <laughs> what? You should go back and watch the documentary. That's what we all do. Just like, you know, with Adam and Eve, it's our tendency to obfuscate, blame shift, shift away, wash our hands. This seems to be in our DNA as well, that we want to say, yeah, I did it, but I don't deserve the consequences of it. You can see it in little children. My daughter Jane regularly comes out of her bed, we'll put her to bed. And for about two hours, she'll come out of the room. I need to ask mom a question. What's the question? Crap. <laughs> she didn't really think about it. And so we start incorporating consequences and sit her down. Jane, did dad say to not come out of your room? Yes. Did you come out of your room? Yes. Did dad say he would take away your blanket if you came out of your room? Yes. Should dad take away your blanket? No. <laughs> Why not? That's not fair. It's one thing to confess you've done wrong, to confess that you've sinned, that you've made a mistake. It is quite another thing to confess that you deserve the punishment of God. To confess that your sin makes you guilty and deserving of death. And David, in true, humble, self-abasing confession, does both. After all, he's already admitted it, right? He already said, that man deserves to die. He knows when it's somebody else. So no need to have any pretension of thinking he doesn't deserve the same thing. Do you believe your sin deserves the eternal objective punishment and wrath of God? That sin is not just an offense against another person. That is bad. That is bad. But in the final analysis, do you realize that a sin primarily against a just God who says that the wages of sin is death, the wages of sin is eternal hell? Do you believe that? And I know many of us question that. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily seem right to us. Many of us think our sin can't possibly warrant such punishment. Eternal punishment for a finite sin. Eternity then for a finite life now. And friends, if that's our thinking, if that's how we think of our sin, we are wrong. We're wrong. David knows 
as should we. That if we were to stand in God's courtroom apart from His grace, there could only be one verdict. Guilty. And one sentence. Death. And it's interesting, you know, David, he he confesses his sin. He's bearing his soul to God, his guilt. And he has this realization about himself. He, He realizes his sin, his adultery, his murder, his lies, they're not his only problem. He he actually sees all these things and he realizes the problem's actually much deeper than just my actions, just what I've done. He says in verse 5, just as, just as much, he says, as he's reflecting on this, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David comes to this realization, sin isn't just something I do. It's not just my actions that I commit. It's deeper. It's within me. It's something within me that twists and distorts and defiles and corrupts everything I touch. Theologians actually have a term for this. It's called original sin. It's this biblical teaching that because of what Adam did, because of Adam's sin, we now live in the wake of the consequences of his sin, and we are actually polluted and born sinful because of what he did. You think of a weed in your yard, and you take weed killer, and you spray it on the top of that weed, and it touches the top of that weed, and the poison then goes down through the stem, into the dirt, outward, into all the root system, and it touches everything so that the only thing that can come up as a result is death. That's what happened when Adam sinned. When Adam sinned, even though he was created good, righteous, pure, because his first sin was like poison, it has now infected all of humanity and all who follow after him so that now we as human beings can only bring forth death and pollution. We are no longer good and righteous. Our hearts are not pure, no matter how many Disney movies tell you otherwise. We as human beings, from our very conception, from our mother's womb, are dead in transgressions and sin. We are born with original sin. Look look at what David prays in verse 6. This is how he comes to realize this is true about himself. He says, Behold, You, God, delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. As he reflects and prays and confesses his sin, he looks inside and he realizes, that's not me. My heart, my inward being is not true and innocent. It's very much the opposite. My heart and soul are poisoned. My adultery, my murder, my lies, my cover-up, they're not out of character. No, they're very much in character. They flow from a heart that is twisted, a heart that is polluted by original sin. They're a reflection of the sin nature we inherited from Adam. R.C. Sproul was a pastor and a teacher, a theologian, died uh, probably about four or five years ago now, he always had this this phrase that stuck with me. He said, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. 
We are not sinners because we sin, because we happen to do bad things. No, we do bad things. We are sinners because we are sinners at our core. And out of that heart flows corruption and poison because that's what's in our hearts. Because at our core, we are corrupted. There's that song that everybody knows by John Newton, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Until we believe we are wretched at our core, grace will never be amazing. Grace will always just be so-so. But David gets it. Oh, he gets it. He sees his corruption. It's been exposed in full. So he prays, have mercy, God. Not only do I sin outwardly, sin is within me. I'm a sinner at the core of my being, born in original sin. I deserve nothing other than your judgment and punishment, God. That's the model. Bear your soul before God and bring who you know to be before the God who already knows who you are. David flows into his second movement. Not only does he confess, he bears his soul, but then he asks God, he pleads for God's forgiveness to wash away his sin. You may have noticed there's this repeated metaphor. You even saw it in the first several verses of Psalm 51. This metaphor throughout David's prayer, David feels dirty. He feels unclean and he begs God, wash me from my iniquity. Blot out my transgressions like a sponge. Cleanse me. Renew me. Maybe the most vivid image of this comes in verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David here, as he's reflecting, he, he equates himself with a leper. You see, in ancient Israel, for a person to approach God, they had to be ceremonially clean, and various things could make you unclean. These could be things like what you ate. They could be things that you came into contact with. They could be things that you wear. And various diseases, like leprosy, could make you unclean. And here, David prays, God, because of my sin, I am dirty. I am unclean. Like a leper, I don't deserve to come into your presence. How could I think of approaching you? The only thing a person could do to make themselves clean was they had to bring a sacrifice, slaughter it before God, take its blood mingled with water, and then a priest would take a hyssop branch with a scarlet yarn tied around it, and the priest would dip it into the water and the blood and sprinkle it seven times over the person who had this leprous disease. And by this process, by virtue of the blood of the sacrifice, a person who was once unclean would be washed, would be sanctified. That indelible mark of sin and uncleanness represented by leprosy could be washed away. Here's David, king of Israel, leader of God's people, a man after God's own heart, acknowledging the only way to remove that sin is to be forgiven, to be washed, to have sin purged by a sacrifice provided by God himself. You look further down in this passage, uh, 
David acknowledges, if I could bring that kind of sacrifice, God, I would bring it, but I can't. If there was some sort of offering I could bring you, I would, but I can't. And he acknowledges the only thing that could take away this indelible mark of sin, it's going to have to be provided by you, God, and you alone. You're the only one who could wash it away. My daughter, McLean, um, she's six years old, and she has this friend, um, as six-year-olds do, you know, that they talk about strange things, but this friend, you know, she's, she's talking about sin and punishment and hell, and again, as six-year-olds do, they say the darndest things. Um, she's, she doesn't like her brother, so she said, I like the devil more than my brother. <laughs> Suffice it to say, she's not on speed dial, Right? Um, well, several nights go by, and I could tell Lainey is gripped by anxiety. She's kind of having trouble falling asleep. She's afraid. And so I ask her one night before I'm putting her down to bed, Lainey, tell Daddy, what are you afraid of? What, what's troubling you? What's the matter, sweetie? Maybe I can help. And McLean says, I'm afraid of my sin, and I'm afraid of God. And into my mind came this verse. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I look at Lainey and I say, Lainey, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he loves you, that he's merciful to you, that he has a steadfast love placed upon you, that he loves you more than me or mom or grandma or grandpa or anybody else in the world. Do you believe that? She says, of course I do. So what I did is I I took a blanket, and it's a white blanket that she sleeps with, you know, one of those down comforters, and I said to her, Lainey, sin is scary. It's terrifying. But Jesus loves you so much, he sacrificed himself for your sins. And I take that blanket and I wrap it around Lainey. And I tell her, McLean, even though there is sin in you, when God looks at you, he does not see that sin. He has turned his face away from it. When he looks at you, all he sees is the perfect, spotless, righteousness, goodness, and grace of his son, Jesus Christ. He looks at you and you are washed. You are as white as snow. And his heavenly fa- this heavenly father's face smiles upon you because you, da- you are his daughter. So whenever you're scared, whenever you fear, wrap yourself and remind yourself you are whiter than snow in Jesus. And because of Jesus, there is nothing to fear. It's fascinating when you think about it. David's first instinct, our first instinct, it's actually correct. It's correct. Our natural tendency to cover our sin and to wash our hands of our consequences, that is a correct instinct. That's what we need. We need our sins covered. We need our sins washed away. But there's only one who can actually do it. There's only one person who can wash away our sins. Only the grace of Jesus by his blood can cover our sins from the face of God. Only he can purge 
our guilt and make us clean by his sacrifice. Only he can remove the indelible blot of sin. We want to simply hit delete and clear it into the ether. No, even God's forgiveness in Jesus is not that simple. On the cross, Jesus didn't delete our sins. No, he he took the history, the browser history. And what he did is he took that and instead of hitting clear all, what he did is he copied and pasted it into his own record. He took all of it, copy, paste, and then the guilt that that sin deserves, he took it, he stood in God's courtroom and took the full wrath and punishment in our place so that we might be washed, we might be sanctified, we might be cleansed, we might not face the guilty verdict that we're so afraid of. Only he can wash away our sins, which are like scarlet, and make them as white as snow. Only Jesus can say to us, because of what I've done, there's nothing to fear. You are forgiven. You have been washed, sanctified, cleansed by my blood. Do not fear. And as we close, look at this final movement of David's prayer. He's confessed. He's bore his soul. He's asked for forgiveness. He's declared that God would be just in punishing him. He began by covering up. It's led to confession, led to asking for forgiveness. And finally, he does the only thing that's possible. He he praises God. Verse 14, he finishes by saying, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David began by covering up, but he had his sin exposed, and he ends as a man who's completely transformed by the grace of God. Every part of David now, his tongue, his lips, his mouth, his spirit, his heart, it overflows in praise to God because he has been delivered from the blood guilt on his hands that he couldn't wash away. David's spirit is broken. His soul is contrite before God. No longer is David great king, great champion leader of God's people, a man after God's own heart. No, now David is nothing more than a humble sinner who's been forgiven and loved by his Savior and God. Completely transformed and changed. What other response to grace and forgiveness can there be but praise? A transformed life lived in response to his goodness. There's a man by the name of Augustine. He was an early church pastor who was known throughout his entire youth as a philanderer, as a man who slept around, who had promiscuous affairs with other women. And by a remarkable transformation, he became a Christian, and people recognized his brilliance. He ultimately became a bishop. And One day, he's walking down the street. There's this story. He's walking down the street, you know, bishop of this town, and walking toward him is a woman he hasn't seen in a while, but it's one of his old flames. And seeing this, he tries to cross to the other side of the street. (laughs) 
but she crosses to the other side of the street because they connect. And she comes up to him and tries to start tempting him and saying, Augustine, come on, Augustine, come on. And he's saying, no, I've got to be going, no, I've got to be going. And finally, she's frustrated, so she grabs him by the scruff of his outfit and says, Augustine, it's me. Remember, it's me. And Augustine looks at her in the eyes and says, I know, but that's no longer me. Friends, don't you know by faith in Jesus, you are forgiven, you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus to no longer live under the shame, the guilt, and the wretchedness of your sin any longer. You have been transformed and received into your Father's arms by the grace of God, by the grace of Jesus. There is no need to fear. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are the King of kings, the King of ages, immortal, invisible, God only wise. And you deserve all honor and glory forever and ever. You deserve all praise. God, even as we speak right now, myriads and myriads of angels fall before your throne and they cry out glory, honor, power, might, wisdom and goodness be to you, O God. And we confess, God, that we do not belong in that heavenly chorus. We confess that we are sinful through and through, not just in our accents, not just in what we do, but we confess we are sinful even to the core of our being. God, there are many of us this morning who feel this profoundly, Lord. We resonate with what David said when he confessed that he deserved your punishment and wrath. Many of us are carrying a tremendous burden because of our sin. God, for those of us who feel that way, have mercy on us. According to your steadfast love in Jesus Christ, your son, according to the abundant mercy found in him, would you blot out our transgressions, wash us from our iniquity. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew us by your Holy Spirit. Change us from people who justify our sin, shift blame for our sin, and cover our sin. Change us into people who confess our sin, plead your forgiveness, and seek transformation by your grace. By the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, we plead and ask these things. Amen.